Welcome to Leave Your Dream Podcast. My name is Selena Lee, and I'm a career and executive coach. I'm sharing inspirational stories from people who overcame rejections and failures to achieve their dreams. I hope these stories will inspire you to have the courage to pursue your own dreams and live a life doing what you love. You'll also hear about how I've transformed my own career from an investment banker and a corporate lawyer to becoming a coach, which I believe is my calling. You'll also learn the strategies I use to coach many professionals out of unfulfilling jobs and into careers they love. I am so excited to share with you my conversation with Debbie Millman. For 20 years, Debbie was the president of Sterling Brands, where she worked with over 200 of the world's largest brands, including Star Wars, Burger King, Hershey's, Haagen-Dazs, and Tropicana, and many other iconic brands. She is the founder and host of Design Matters, one of the world's first and longest-running podcasts, where she has interviewed nearly 500 artists, designers, and cultural commentators for over 15 years. In 2009, Debbie co-founded the world's first graduate program in branding at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. She has been named one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company and one of the most influential designers working today by Graphic Design USA. So I've been following Debbie for a long time and I really admired her, not just for her accomplishments in her career, but also was really inspired by how she overcame a lot of difficulties, especially when she was young, as you'll hear about in our conversation today. And she is someone who refused to be defined by her circumstances, and despite getting a lot of rejections, she kept trying again and again, and eventually became incredibly successful in her industry. So I've been a fan of Debbie for a long time and dreamed that one day I will interview her on my podcast. She teaches at SVA, School of Visual Arts, which is just one block away from where I live in New York City in Chelsea neighborhood. And I thought she's like 30 seconds away from me and there has to be a way for me to meet her and and invite her to my podcast. And one day I randomly came across an event that was happening that night where she was one of the speakers, and I frankly didn't even know anything about the event, but I just knew that I had to go and meet her because it's all about showing up, right? So of course, this is before the pandemic when uh, real life events were still happening. So I bought a ticket and just showed up at the event a few hours later. And when I walked in, I saw Debbie in line to go to the bathroom and I was like, oh my gosh, she's right there. And of course, I was uh, really starstruck and kind of nervous, but I knew I just had to talk to her. This was my chance. So I walked up to her and I said, are you Debbie? And I know this is kind of a silly question, but she was incredibly kind and very nice. And I told her how I had been following her for a long time and how much I admired her and her work. And I told her that I came to this event just to meet her. And I also uh, shared with her my story and about my podcast and asked if I could interview her on my podcast. And she said, sure. And she gave me her email address and I was so excited. And 
By the way, in real life events, if you want to meet and talk to the speaker, it's usually a good idea to try before the event uh, if possible. Of course, some speakers don't like to talk before the event. Maybe they're doing their last minute prep, but if you see that they are around and they don't seem busy uh, and you see them talking to other people, uh, this is often the best time to say hi and introduce yourself. Because at the end of the event, there's usually a long line to talk to the speakers, so you may have to wait a long time or you may not even get the chance. Well, I know this because I also do a lot of speaking engagements and I've seen that sometimes people wait a long time to talk to me at the end of the event, which I always really feel bad about. So try talking to the speaker right before the event if possible. Of course, this is when we go back to our normal life after the pandemic. So anyway, back to my story of meeting Debbie. So after she gave me her email address and asked me to send her an email, she told me that she's actually flying out to London that night after the event. So I knew that she was going to be out of town for a while and may not respond to my email right away. So I waited several days and then emailed her, uh, reminding her how we met and inviting her for an interview on my podcast. And I did not get any response. <laughs> so I sent another email a month later and again, no response. <laughs> and then three months later, she actually emailed me back and said, I'm so sorry about losing touch. If you still like to do the interview, I would be honored. And I was like, oh my God, the honor is all mine. And I remember this moment so clearly because I was actually traveling in Cuba at the time and didn't have internet access, which was both frustrating and liberating at the same time. Well, this is a topic for another episode. Um, so I couldn't check my email for several days. And when I finally was able to check it for the first time, only for like a few minutes, I saw that I got a response from Debbie. So I was of course super excited. So I immediately wrote her back, but did not get any response. <laughs> so I followed up about two weeks later and again, no response. And then I emailed her again about two weeks after that. And she finally responded to me with the date and time for our interview. So I finally had my interview with her, which was amazing. And I hope my story of how I met Debbie and recorded this interview shows you that a no or a lack of response is not a permanent no. It's not a no never, it's just a no right now. So if you get a no or don't get a response, do not get discouraged and please try again. Because if I had given up after not getting a response from Debbie, like the first time or the second time or the third time or even the fourth time, this interview would have never happened. I had to try five times before she said yes. And learning to not let the fear of rejection get in the way of you trying for the things you want is crucial for your success because if you don't ask for it, you're never going to get it. So I give all my coaching clients these ongoing assignments called the rejection challenge or the resilience challenge and ask them to get as many rejections as possible every single week. The goal is just to get rejected. So if you get a yes, then you have not done the homework. And when the goal itself is getting rejected, then you're no longer worried about getting rejected and getting your feelings hurt. And this really helps you to reframe rejections. And so many of my clients are really shocked at how many yeses they get because 
they often get a yes from a person or an opportunity that they otherwise would have never tried had it not been for the assignment that I gave them. And they get a yes and they're like, oh my God, I would have never gotten this opportunity because if you didn't make me, I would have never tried for it or asked for it. So think about in your own life how you may have been self-rejecting yourself before you even give yourself the permission to just try it and go for it. If you're able to reframe rejection as the evidence that you are trying and getting one step closer to achieving your goals and dreams, then you'll be able to achieve incredible things in your life. I actually have an episode where I talk all about the rejections I got while trying to write my book, which was uh, my childhood dream. And it's actually the most popular solo episode on my podcast. So if you want to hear all about the creative and crazy things I did to try to meet and convince people I wanted to interview for my book, you can check out my podcast episode 37, How to Turn No Into Yes, and I'll be sure to include the link in today's show notes. You can go to selinalee.co forward slash episode 40. That is C-E-L-I-N-A-L-E-E.co forward slash episode 40. Or just click on the show notes for today's episode on your podcast app. Dealing with rejection is one of the topics I talked to Debbie in our conversation. And we also talked about why courage is more important than confidence and how what seemed like the worst thing that happened in a career actually turned out to be the best thing. You'll also hear about a very important assignment she did in Milton Glazer's class at School of Visual Arts about how to design and manifest your dream life. Milton Glazer is one of the most famous and celebrated graphic designers in the world and is well known for his I Love New York logo, which I'm sure all of you have seen and is also a founder of New York Magazine. He passed away last summer in 2020 on his 91st birthday. My interview with Debbie was recorded before the pandemic, but I think what we discuss is still not only relevant, but even more important now. So I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. And before I share my conversation with Debbie today, there's something I'm really excited about and I wanted to tell you about it. I'm in the process of developing my first online course and group coaching program, which I will launch this year. I had a very successful small group coaching program last year, and I decided to further develop it into a course. In this new course, I'll have weekly live sessions where you learn everything I teach about how to do what you love and how to create a fulfilling and meaningful career and life. You'll be part of an inspiring community of people who are going through a journey of transforming their careers and lives, and there will be a lot of support and accountability to help you take action on your goals and dreams. So I'm now inviting a small group of people to join as a founding member. As a founding member, you'll get many benefits, which will include the lowest price that will ever be offered, and also one-on-one coaching with me and many other bonuses and benefits. And you'll also be able to help me shape the course and take part in helping many people to change their careers and lives. So if you are interested in learning more, just message me on my website, selinalee.co forward slash contact. That is C-E-L-I-N-A-L-E-E dot C-O forward slash contact, or just click the link for today's show notes on your podcast app. I'm only inviting a small group of people to be a founding member, so be sure to reach out soon if you are interested in learning more about it. Okay, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Debbie Millman. 
Hi, Debbie. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I am so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for your time. I have many, many questions I want to ask you, but I'd first like to uh, start with the childhood. Where were you born and where did you grow up? I am a native New Yorker. I was born in Brooklyn, and I grew up in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, Long Island, went to college in Albany, New York, the capital of New York. And then as soon as I graduated, I moved to Manhattan, and I've lived here ever since. I heard you did a drawing when you were eight years old that kind of predicted your life. Yes, yes. I, I only discovered it later in life when I was going through a box of old things of mine. But I drew a picture of a little girl walking on the streets of Manhattan, um, there was, uh, it's a street scene, and it has a bank that's labeled bank, and a dry cleaners that's labeled dry cleaners. <laughs> wow. my, my signage was exceptionally accurate. Um, a cab, a taxi that's a taxi. Um, but then there was a delivery truck, a big delivery truck, and it said Lay's Potato Chips, but I drew the logo. Wow. And so... 35 years later, there I was living in Manhattan, going to banks and dry cleaners and taking taxis and buses <laughs> and drawing logos for a living. So it, it seemed somewhat serendipitous. Yeah. And for 20 years, you were the president of Sterling Brands, where yes. you worked on branding for some of the most famous and iconic brands in the world, like yes. uh, Burger King, Star Wars, 7-Up, Hershey's, Haagen-Dazs, Tropicana. I mean, the list goes on and yeah. on and on. So it's kind of very interesting that your drawing predicted your life in a way. I know. It <laughs> makes you wonder how much knowledge we're really born with about the trajectory of our lives. Right. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood? Ugh, my childhood. Mm. Uh, well, I was born in Brooklyn. Um, I lived there for the first two years of my life. And then uh, my folks moved to Howard Beach, Queens. I went to public school there, PS 207. Stayed there till the middle of third grade. Then my parents, uh, we moved to Staten Island. My dad uh, was a pharmacist, and he bought his first pharmacy on Staten Island, a pharmacy called Maybowers. And we lived there until my parents got divorced. I moved the summer before sixth grade with my mother and then her new husband and his two kids to Long Island and lived there till I graduated mm. and went to school. Mm. But it was a dark childhood. I, I would consider my childhood to be the dark years of my life. I Lots see. of craziness and violence and abuse and sadness and tears and not, mm. not great. Mm. Did you have a childhood dream during those years? Something that you thought you might want to do when you grew up? <laughs> it's funny. I used to love to play school. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> well, here we are yeah. recording at uh, School of Visual Arts where you teach. <laughs> yep. And I, I actually was so involved in, in this sort of play acting. Um, my brother was my student and I'd have, my parents got me a book that I could record like the names of the students in. So I'd make up names for the entire student <laughs> body and then I'd call the attendants. And so <laughs> my brother was my only student, but I taught him so well that he ended up skipping kindergarten and going straight into first grade because he knew how to do everything that you learn in kindergarten. Wow. And my parents thought it would just be boring for him. And so he skipped kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> How fun is that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I've heard that you worked at a school newspaper when you were in college. I did, the mm. Albany Student Press, mm -hmm. and I love that. That is really what first introduced me to the world of design. Mm. I 
very quickly realized after becoming the editor of the arts and feature section of the newspaper in my senior year that the editors were also responsible for the design and the layout of the newspaper. And so I realized very quickly that I like design as much, if not more, than the editorial. You didn't get the opportunity to work there the first time you asked for it. Yes. I went in my freshman year, and the then editor at the time, a man named Robert Edelstein, who is a dear, dear friend of mine, asked me a very, I would say, rudimentary question about my background in an effort to understand Looking back on it now, I could say this with clarity. Looking to understand where I might fit in, he asked me if I had any clips that I could show him of my previous work. And <laughs> all I had was high school stuff because I was a freshman and right. felt really embarrassed and humiliated and didn't go back for years. Mm. Um, but we we became friendly over the course of uh, my college experience by the time I was a senior. And now, 36 years later, is somebody very, very near and dear to me. Wow. So the first time you tried to get an opportunity to work there, and then he said, oh, do you have any prior experience? Right. And, and I basically <laughs> didn't think that any of my prior experience was relevant because it was mm. high school and um, was too embarrassed to go back. Mm. So I've heard in other um interviews you've done that you describe yourself as very sensitive to rejection. I think a lot of us are, right? Mm. So how did you still um, go after the things that you wanted even though you were easily discouraged, which I think actually virtually all of us are, right? Well, I wouldn't say that I'm Mm. easily discouraged. In that Mm. case, it did take three years for me to try again. Um, I wouldn't say I'm easily discouraged now. I'm easily hurt. My feelings get hurt and I I feel the sting of rejection deeply. But I've been asked this question so many times that yeah. I've had to really think about the answer. Yeah. And what I can tell you is that I think that my hope of a better outcome mm-hmm. is bigger than my shame or humiliation in the moment. Wow, I see. Interesting. Mm. So what you might be able to create and do with your work is more important than your feelings at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Mm. My desire for something bigger or better mm-hmm. is stronger in me than mm. my shame and of, of and humiliation of rejection. I see. Even so, though it feels really big. Right. <laughs> so you, well, you try not to get your emotions get in the way of still pursuing the things that you want. Oh, no, they do. Mm-hmm. They get in the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they get in the way. I just don't let them stay in the way. Ah, got it. Even though it might take three years right. to go exactly. back. Exactly, exactly. It's a little bit better now. I think yeah. that it's more in proportion to my experience now with metabolizing rejection. Mm-hmm. It doesn't The humiliation doesn't last forever. It does dissipate right, a bit. Right, uh, What did you do after graduating from college? I went to work at a cable magazine mm-hmm. and did that for about a year. And then worked in real estate marketing, and I hated that. I hated every single day of that. Mm. And then started working at a rock and roll magazine where I was both an editor and a designer. And then from there worked with a friend of mine that I had met that also worked on the student newspaper, but I hadn't met him during college. Uh, He also worked at the rock magazine, and he and I started a design firm, which we did for nearly five years. Mm -hmm. And then I left took some time off to try to recalibrate my life. I was 30 at that point and feeling like whatever I was doing was not meaningful enough or artistic enough, creative enough, just not a lot of enoughs. 
and then ended up getting a job at a company that I was really coveting a job for, a company called Frankfurt Gibbs Balkind. And I did that for a year as well. And that wasn't a great experience in terms of my um, creative output, but I learned a lot. And But that really was, I would say, one of the rock bottom moments where mm. even the firm that I wanted to work out so badly that I thought was going to change my life and my trajectory turned out to be kind of a dud. And that's when I ended up getting into branding. And mm. that was the early 90s. Mm. And, and that really was then the direction of my career in branding. So it necessarily wasn't something you planned when you were graduating from no, college, right? not at all. Not yeah. at all. I didn't even know that there was anything like that as mm. a career. Mm. I mean, my dad was a pharmacist, and I spent a lot of time in his pharmacy and spent a lot of time behind the cashier watching how, uh, behind the cash register, as a cashier, watching how people bought things, why they bought things, the way they shopped. I don't know if it was osmosis. I don't know if it was just being in the environment for as long as I was. Ever since I was a little girl, I went and visited my dad in his pharmacy. And so I think it's an innate talent that mm. I developed as a very young person that stayed with me throughout my life. I do think that there is something to having an innate knowledge of something before you even know that it's knowledge. And I was, at a very young age, conscious of the effect that pretty barrettes might have or what makeup could do to a young woman or what hair color might provide. And so because all of those things were sold in my father's store and I was able to watch people buy things and observe their emotional transformation in that experience without even knowing that I was observing it, just visioning it, <laughs> see, having this in front of me, witnessing it is, I guess, the right word. Um, I think it gave me a sense of what these acquisitions did to a person. Mm, I love that. Um, I know a person who had a big influence on your life is Milton Glaser. Yes. Can you tell us about him and how it impacted your life? Well, I knew of Milton for a long time before I was taught by him. I was obviously a huge fan of his work as one of the most famous graphic designers alive mm -hmm. and his influence on design and culture. Uh, I ended up taking a class with him, a summer intensive in 2005 mm -hmm. at the School of Visual Arts. This mm -hmm. was before I was teaching. And I took a class with him that really transformed the, the direction of my life after in terms of envisioning a life that had more purpose and more agency and more intention. Um, I heard he has you um, and other students do an assignment. Yes. Um, can you describe it to us? This is, well, his assignment mm -hmm. was one of the culminating projects in this program, and it was a five-year plan. You had to envision your life five years into the future doing everything that you wanted to be doing. So imagine a day in your life five years into the future from the morning till the night and you have to describe the day. Mm -hmm. Just describe the day. It's not really opinionating or um, 
writing as a journalist. It's just a almost like a diary entry, like an essay mm-hmm. uh, about what you about were what doing you do with- from the moment you wake up till the moment you go to sleep. And mm-hmm. he urged us to take it seriously. He felt that it was a very powerful little exercise. He felt that this did have the power to influence who you could become. He'd witnessed it in others over the 40 or 50 years of his teaching, and he did say that this class was one of the most important things that he did. Wow. And uh, I put my heart and soul into it Mm. and envisioned everything that I'd ever wanted at that point, really imagined wide, and within, I'd say, a year or so, Uh, began to manifest a lot of what I'd written. And it's now 19 years later. No, I'm sorry, 14 years later. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that the only things that didn't manifest are things that I changed my mind about. (laughs) I see. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, yeah, really powerful. And Mm. so not last New Year's Eve, but the one before, I decided to write another Wow, and I see. So, um, I only read it once a year, and mm. you end up sort of forgetting what you've written. Mm. But when I went back to look at Milton's over the years, I was always astounded by what had come to fruition. And even in the first year after writing my second plan, I had the same experience. Wow, that's really amazing. shocking. Wow. Shocking. (laughs) There's magical quality to it. Yes, there is. So are you supposed to write as fast as you can and not edit, but go back and read it every year? I don't think there are those Mm. sort of hard and strong rules. Mm. And no one says you can't read it more than once a year. You could probably (laughs) read it every day if you wanted to. That was just the way I wrote it, forgot about it, Mm. came upon the notebook I wrote in a year later, forgot about the exercise completely. And it was only when re-engaging with it Mm. that I was astonished by its power, Wow! even one year mm-hmm. later. Um, I wanted to tell you my story, too, because um, I also wrote my dream list or, like, a letter to myself and um, about what I could become uh, in the future when I was, I think, 13 years old. And I did this because I got bullied a lot because um, my parents had come from Korea and looked different, and just it was just tough time for me. Um, so I wrote a letter to myself, like, um, these kids' opinions of me are not as important, and one day I'm going to be this person who, you know, does this and that, and, like, including writing a book and helping people. And um, I had completely forgot that I wrote this. And then many, many years later, my sister took a picture of it at my parents' home and then sent it to me. I was like, what is this? She's like, oh, it looks like your dream list from when you were 13 years old. And I was shocked that I had done everything on that <gasps> list. Oh, my God, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. I'm so sorry you were bullied, really. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think, um, you know, seven, eighth grade is just a tough age it for really everyone. Is. but. Yep especially for people who look different and mm-hmm. who are not from the same culture or didn't speak the same language. So yep. um, I really, Look, I can yeah. tell you as a 7th and 8th <laughs> grader, as a white, fairly okay-looking American, mm-hmm. it was brutal for me. I can only imagine how yeah. brutal it is for anybody that isn't that. Right. And it's just people are, are just awful. Yeah, and I think it's... Uh, when you feel like really no one's there to support you. I mean, if there, of course, like there are family and, and parents and all that, but I think you can feel so alone like during mm-hmm. those times. And this power of just writing down like 
the future of who you think you could be was really, really a profound exercise in which it really changed my life. So I could totally understand why, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it changed yours too. So now that you teach at School of Visual Art, I think you have your students do the same exercises. I do. I have yeah. both my undergrads and my grad students do it. Mm. And as far as I can tell, it's also really powerful for them. <laughs> I changed it to a 10-year plan. Oh, I see. Milton's class mm-hmm. was a, a class for mid-career designers. I see. So for a slightly older group of people. I see. Most of my undergrads are still in their early 20s. And even my grad students are probably the average age is late 20s, early 30s. Mm. And I still feel like there's so much trajectory. There's so much runway that they have that why rush it? Yeah. What were some of the dreams that you've seen your uh, students achieve after writing their plans for their remarkable life? Oh, uh, certain jobs that they want, (laughs) um, wanting to live in certain places, uh, certain quality of life, Mm. a certain kind of partner, children, um, just really wonderful things. Mm, Amazing. Um, I heard you had an experience in your life where um, it had a huge impact on your career, and it's related to the blog Speak Up. Can you tell us about the story? (laughs) Uh, well, this was 2003. Yeah. So the world in 2003 was a very different world. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was just, there was no YouTube. Maybe YouTube started shortly thereafter. Certainly no social media. Right. Um, no MySpace. It was a very different world. People were emailing. They were doing some shopping online. Amazon was just like, had 1.5 million books in print on, on Amazon. It was a very different, different world. And a friend of mine sent me a link to an article that she had seen on a design blog that I I didn't even know existed. I didn't even know what a design blog was. Um, It was the word blog was short for weblog, which was a more sophisticated forum where people could write things about Mm -hmm. things. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there was an article that had been posted about me criticizing my work and criticizing my involvement with AIGA, wow, which mm-hmm. was really minor at the time, mm-hmm. my, my involvement with AIGA. AIGA folks did not openly embrace me as a um, as the kind of member they were hoping to have. And so I was startled to see this article kind of take down my entire career. Wow. And it was very, very painful. And I didn't know what to do about it. I was called a she-devil. Oh, my gosh. My work was called a pair of turds. (laughs) Um, I had never heard of anybody that had written articles on Speak Up, although I had heard of quite a number of the people that were commenting. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of those people were heroes of mine, Emily Oberman, John Bielenberg, people that I really respected. Wow. And so, although Emily didn't write anything negative, I just want to make that clear because she's a very dear friend of mine now all these mm-hmm. years later. And um, I didn't know what to do. And I, I waited a little bit and then finally entered into the conversation in a very sort of gingerly manner. Um, and then ultimately tried to share my point of view about why, for example, I thought my Burger King logo wasn't a turd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, the whole thing was very indicative, I think, of where the internet was going in terms of the kind of bullying that we see now and fake news. 
Um, of course. But at the time, it felt very personal. I'd never experienced anything like that. I was really humiliated. I was really afraid that people in my office would see it. I was the president of the firm, so I felt that it was a bad example um, of, of, of our leadership. And so I ended up writing in, and I think I persuaded people, but I think that what really opened people's eyes to my point of view was the way in which I communicated it, not necessarily what I was saying, but mm. the way I was saying it. I wasn't particularly defensive. I was trying to be super logical and respectful. And then a few weeks after the brouhaha sort of wound down, the founder of Speak Up, Armin Vitt, asked me to start writing for the site, <laughs> wow. which I did. And, and I'm now, so that was 2003, so 16 years later, um, Armin and Bryony, the founders of Speak Up, they also run brand new, are among my closest friends. I'm the godmother to their oldest daughter. Wow. <laughs> so you never know where life is going to take you. Also, mm -hmm. I can say that from that moment in time, that there's really nothing that happened to me after that experience that I can't in some ways point back to it being an origin point. Wow. All of my creative professional success can be pointed to that moment. Wow. Because every connection I made through that experience, even my, my taking the Milton class. Oh, wow. Because I was on my way to an AIGA event after the, after the article had, long after the article came out, maybe six months after, when I was already writing for Speak Up, all the Speak Up people were going to meet in Vancouver at the AIGA conference to have a launch party for a little book that Armin had designed with some of the best content on Speak Up, met the editor-in-chief of Print Magazine on that plane. Wow. <laughs> ended up writing for Print Magazine. Because I wrote for Print Magazine, I'd get the issues early. And in one of the early issues I got was an ad for Milton Glaser's class, which, because I got it early, is the only reason I got in. Amazing. Because it was first come, first served. <laughs> Wow, how So I was, I think, the first person to call. Wow. So it's fascinating how an event in your life that seems so terrible, so awful at the time, could potentially have been one of the most, most significant, without a doubt, experience of your life. Absolutely. A, a blessing. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember walking home from work mm. that night that I found the article, crying, mm. thinking my professional career was over. I'd have mm. to quit to save my companies any dishonor. I, I felt humiliated. I felt worthless, mm. worthless in every sense of the word, and was really down about it for quite some time. Mm. Yet little, you know. Little did I know <laughs> that that experience would change everything about that my life. That was just the beginning of your amazing just, yeah. career. Yes. Um, but so. also want to point out at the time, mm -hmm. 2003, I was in my 30s already. Well, into, no, I was in my 40s. What am I saying? I was already into my 40s. Mm. So I was in my early 40s. And that's really when my career took off. So, wow. you know, for anybody out there that's in their early 20s or early 30s or late 30s or early 40s <laughs> and thinking, when's it going to happen? You have plenty of time. Yeah. I, that's one of the questions that I get a lot of people talk about how, oh, I'm in my late 20s or early 30s, and, you know, I feel like I should have already figured it out. I'm like, no, you have plenty of time, right? <laughs> 
So your career is just a, an example to right. that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so amongst so many amazing things that you did is um, one of them is your podcast. Yes. Uh, so on Design Matters, you have conversations about how creative people design their lives. Um, and I think you started it many years ago when podcast was not even a thing. Right. So I started it in 2005. <laughs> yeah. And I started it because I was cold called by an internet, fledgling internet radio network called Voice America. I thought they were calling me with a job offer. <laughs> they were calling me with an opportunity to pay them wow. to produce my podcast on the radio network. And at the time, because so much of my work was corporate, because all of my work was corporate at that time, and I'd all but given up my own self-generated writing and illustration and painting, that I thought, oh, why not try to do this? Because it could be a creative endeavor. I could also potentially incorporate work into it by interviewing some of my clients um and and that's how it began and it's mm. been 15 years wow. 15, 15 years. years and i think it's years. one of the oldest and yeah longest uh, running running yeah. podcast there's, in there's the less world. than 10 of us that are still podcasting wow. from those early days mm. um and i think after working at sterling brands for over 20 years um, you left. I did. You left. Well, we sold the company in 2008, mm -hmm. and I had a five-year contract to stay on and ended up staying eight. Mm -hmm. um, I was still having fun. I was renovating a house, wanted the paycheck. Yes. <laughs> and um, just felt that it was time. I was already in my 50s, if not now, when, in terms mm -hmm. of having the freedom to do more expansive things to be able to do all the things that I always said I was going to do if I only had the time to do them. And so I took the leap in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in 2009, you also co-founded the Masters in Branding at the School of Visual Arts, where we're recording. Yes, so we're recording in my podcast, <laughs> in your podcast studio, studio right now. Here at SVA, yes. Um, and I think you teach undergrads and graduate students, and one of the classes um, about how to get the job of your dreams. Well, it's called yeah. how to, it's called differentiate or die, how I to see. get a job when you graduate. I see. But mm -hmm. I try to position it as not just any job, but mm -hmm. a job of your dreams. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I've been teaching that. I think since 2006. Mm -hmm. So a job of your dreams that also pays the bill. Like, so what are some of the things that you teach your students and how to do that? Oh, well, it's not really <laughs> something that I could, mm. it's not a soundbite. Right, it's right, a, of it's course. It's a 15-week class. Of course, yeah. Which is a very intense journey mm. in determining who you are, why you do the things you do, mm. why you want the things you want, what you think you're what you think you deserve, what you tell yourself about what you think you deserve. Wow. Developing a mission statement to articulate what you'd most like to be able to do, to develop a graduation plan, a post-graduation plan to give you a roadmap to be able to get the things that you really want. You learn how to sit in interviews, you learn how to put together a work portfolio, which is very different from a school portfolio, to write a resume, to have a the right LinkedIn profile. So it's it's a very tactical but also psychological class yeah. to both evaluate who you are, why you are, and what you could do with what you want. Mm. And I've often seen that when uh, the reason why people are not living the lives that they want or not getting the things that they want 
is not necessarily because of external circumstances, but Allah has to do with internal obstacles, right? Yes. And yes. people say like self sabotage, right? And they self edit before mm-hmm. you know they they think something's impossible mm-hmm. before they even consider the fact that it could be possible. Right. Right. And so early on in their twenties, early twenties, they begin to edit out things that they just don't think they could do mm. before they even try. So it's like you don't even give yourself the permission. Yeah. You don't even let yourself take the action. Yeah. So of course you're not going to get it because you've never tried for it. <laughs> right. And and I think that I have a particular knowledge of this mm. in my own life yeah. at that age and then even older that it helps me, I think, really sincerely try to help them. So what is it that you teach now that you wish you knew when you were at that point in your life? Um, I think the the notion of self-sabotage, of self-editing, of self-denial, yeah. how worthlessness can, or the sense of being worthless can and will limit what is, is possible for you. Yeah, it's really... Uh, surprising how unkind and mean we are to ourselves oh, yeah. yeah the things that we say to ourselves that we would never say to our best friends or our yes, loved ones right absolutely and we're not even aware of that right yes. constant dialogue <laughs> mm, constant mm. Um, a lot of people say oh i would love to do this and that but i'm not confident enough mm-hmm. what would you say to those people well I, i've talked mm-hmm. a lot about mm-hmm. the fact that i believe that courage is more important than confidence. And mm-hmm. this is something that the writer Danny Shapiro taught me, mm-hmm. that confidence is overrated. Mm-hmm. And I thought a lot about that conversation to try to understand what confidence really is. People think that you could go into a supermarket and sort of pick confidence off the shelf. <laughs> and we're taught that, you know, with right. hair color and makeup and the certain kinds of clothes and iPods and iPads and gadgets and devices and cars and shoes and bags and whatnot. Um, I think that you can only really develop confidence after the successful repetition of any endeavor. You know, we are born unable to walk, talk, eat, bathe ourselves, clean ourselves, go to the bathroom by ourselves, etc. We have to learn all these things. Of course. And it's only when we learn them and do them enough times that we can say we have car confidence when we're driving or right. <laughs> confidence when we're in the bathroom or whatever. Um, that people expect to have confidence in doing something that they've yet to do right. is a falsehood of epic proportions. Mm. We just can't ever expect to be confident doing something that we've either never done before or have only done a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that ultimately courage to take the first step Mm. into the effort of trying something is much more important than confidence. And I think a lot of people um, don't have the courage because we feel so insecure. Right. right? And, And I think it's something that like we all as humans share, right? Mm-hmm. Feeling like we're not smart enough or, you know, didn't go to the right school or didn't come from the right family and ultimately like feeling like not good enough, right? Yeah. And what would your advice be for those people who struggle with that? I think once you realize mm-hmm. that you're not going to be able to just 
achieve confidence. Right. <laughs> that you have to work for confidence. Yeah, yeah. That the idea of stepping into that effort and taking that first step mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. the experience of trying will help develop mm-hmm. confidence. Mm-hmm. I think another thing, reason why people don't really live the life that they want um, is because they keep saying, well, I would love to do X, Y, and Z, but I don't have the time because I'm well, so busy, yeah, right? <laughs> uh, that's, that is, that is, yeah. talk about epic yeah. delusion. Everybody Everybody it. does it. Yeah. Everybody says it, but I believe, and this I think will be on my tombstone one day, <laughs> busy is a decision. That's right. We decide what we want to do. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to do something, mm-hmm. or if you want to do something and you say you don't because you're too busy, I contend that it's just not a big enough priority, mm. that we do the things we want to do. Right. If we don't do them. Now, the one exception I would say are single parents. Right. Single parents have a lot to deal with. Mm. They they can be busy and are busy. Right. Everybody else, if you are not doing what you want to be doing, then you're doing something else that you'd want to be doing more. Right. So your actions actually shows what is important to you. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, we make decisions every day about what we want to do. Right. If you are not making the work that you want to make at your job, mm-hmm. self-generate some other kind of work. Mm. Stefan Sagmeister says that if you don't have the portfolio that you want, design the portfolio you want. Mm. And if you're not doing the kind of work that you want to be doing, then make the work that you want to be doing when you're not doing the work that you don't want to be doing. Right. You know, it's just a matter of choice. Don't watch Game of Thrones. Don't <laughs> go on vacation. Don't be. Don't pretend you want to do something and then say you're too busy to do it because you're not doing it. Right. And I think um, for some people who are really not getting the meeting or fulfillment in their jobs, you could do it at home, like as a side project. Right, absolutely. Or on the Design weekend, Matters right? started as a side project. Exactly. Right, right. Um, I think we live in a world where we feel, a lot of us feel like we are failure if we haven't figured out our life like in our 20s or in the early 30s, right? And I love that you talk about everything worthwhile, you know, takes a long time. And that it was well into your 40s that you actually got to do the things that you love to do. Absolutely. And I recently, and I've talked about this before, so Mm -hmm. I'm sorry if I'm being redundant, but I interviewed David Lee Roth a couple of months ago, the Mm -hmm. great front man of Van Halen. And in the 1980s, Van Halen was the most popular rock and roll band on the planet. Wow. And when I was interviewing David Lee Roth, I asked him what that felt like. What did it feel like to be (laughs) in the most popular rock band in the world at that time in his life? And his answer really startled me. He, He got very contemplative and said that you have to be really careful when you get to the top of a mountain because it's often cold you're usually alone, wow. and there's only one direction. To go down. <laughs> yeah. And so I really, I think about that all the time. Wow. And I don't want to reach the peak till the day before I die. Oh, You know, yes. I, I'm fine with it taking a long time. Right. Because I haven't peaked yet. Right. And certain people haven't peaked just because they're such geniuses. Like Paula Cher hasn't peaked yet. Paula mm-hmm. Cher's in her 70s, and she's doing the best work of her life. What more can you ask for? Mm. And so even though we live in a world where people celebrate like early success, um, it's not a necessarily a good thing because you have to maintain it. And chances of maintaining is very low, right? (laughs) If you have to keep maintaining greatness for the rest of your life, Mm. you have to pace yourself. Wow. 
So how wonderful is that that we build up to the the greatest that we can be, you know, over the course of our lives. Yeah, a Polish Mm. heir actually told me, she said, the 50s are your power years. Mm. And I I would say that for me has been very true. Mm. I love that. I look forward to that. Exactly. (laughs) Um, We all know that no one succeeds alone and achieves dreams alone. This is a question that I ask everybody on my podcast. Um, So who helped you to get to where you're now? Steve Heller. Mm. Tell tell us about Steve. Uh, Steve is a prolific writer. He was the art director of the book review for 30 years at the New York Times. He started uh, the Designer as Entrepreneur program here at the School of Visual Arts, which is where he now works. He was tasked by the president of the School of Visual Arts, David Rhodes, to start some progressive uh, graduate programs and invited me to join him in creating the Master's in Branding program, which we are at now. He also helped me get my first book deal. I love Um, that. He has been the most influential person in my life to me. He's my mentor. He's my friend, Mm. my colleague, my comrade and now the co-owner of Print Magazine because we recently acquired it with four other partners and we'll be relaunching it. Well, how amazing is that? Because I I heard in your other interviews that you wanted to write for the print magazine. Yeah. So print magazine, for those of people who are not in the design world, is actual magazine with the name print magazine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> people are like, what? <laughs> is it one of the oldest, if not the oldest magazine, design magazine in the country, mm-hmm. in the United States? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was the editor-in-chief for a while mm-hmm. when the owners, the then owners, decided to keep it just digital. I decided I didn't want to do that, so I resigned um, Steve was a longtime writer and editor at the magazine, 40 years, 40 plus years. And um, the company that owned the magazine went bankrupt and we bought the assets from a company that then acquired uh, the magazine and that closed, the deal closed um, last Friday. Amazing. And I'm super excited. I couldn't be more excited wow. about it. So you one day had a dream for writing the print magazine. And, and now then now you're the old. <laughs> <laughs> and all of this, including meeting Steve Heller, uh, happened because of that terrible article yes. written about you at Speak Up. Yes. So what an interesting life What that an was. interesting life. <laughs> That is exactly right. That is exactly right. It has been an interesting mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. I heard you talk about that there are two ways of living, living out of uh, fear or living out of power. Mm, yes. And and I think a lot of people do live out of fear, fear yeah. of what they can't do or won't do or afraid of doing. I still do. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not, I would not say that I'm a living in the power kind of person. As I said earlier in the show, I feel that my desire for more is bigger than my shame at failing or being rejected. And that is probably the biggest understanding of myself that's helped me Mm. understand that it's not over till you decide it is Mm. in terms of your efforts. And I think... um when you were young, you were someone who would try. I heard you applied for Columbia Journal School and then didn't get it and then applied for other things and then didn't get it. And then you didn't keep trying again. But over time, you became this person who tries. What what happened there and well, what have you learned? I think that those things were, those were important rejections. I... I don't know that I wanted them enough to be able to keep trying. Ah, interesting. To to get in or do it again. Um, 
I don't know. I think that that's also just 20s learning and yeah. troubleshooting and experimenting and mm. flailing. Mm. And um, you've taught me to not never take first no as as a no. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I actually counted that. I emailed you five times to confirm this interview. <gasps> really? But I didn't say no at first, did I? No, no. Oh. It was it was a, a res- no response. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's very hard for me to keep up. I do my very no, best. No, but it was, oh. it was actually... Yeah. I was I absolutely did not expect to get a response um, and it it was like oh like no Debbie told me well in your other because I've been following you for years and years that yeah like you talk a lot about like you had to try multiple times to get the opportunities that you wanted right. and then you learn over the years to never take no or a lack of response as a permanent no right. and I learned that from you so Good, so okay. here we are hey. <laughs> um, that makes me happy <laughs> So, um, well, and then if I had taken the lack of responses and no, then we wouldn't be here, right? <laughs> Thank you. Um, you've interviewed so many successful people over the years from all kinds of industries. Um, I'm so curious to know, like, what have you learned about success and happiness from these people and from your own life? Well, one of the biggest things that I've learned is that most people, if not everyone I've ever interviewed, aside from maybe two people, are really insecure about their place in the world. Even the amazing people you've interviewed. Yes, (laughs) yes. They still worry that they're going to be able to do it again the next day or if their best work is behind them or if they can still achieve something significant. Uh, The only two people that I've interviewed, of the 500 or so people I've interviewed at this point, that didn't really feel that way or communicate that were Milton Glaser and Massimo Vignelli. And I attribute that to their both being in their 80s and just having <laughs> so few fucks left to give. Right, you know? right. It's like, hey, this is never going to yeah, get better. Yeah. And mm-hmm. as I get older, I feel it too. I can feel being less tolerant of um, bullies or injustices. I, I, I also feel like I have more courage now to to stand up for things that mean more to me than I used to. Mm. Is there anything that you'd want to tell your younger self, maybe in your 20s, just starting out in your career and just trying to figure it all out? Because there's a lot of listeners who are listening who are like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. (laughs) Yeah, I would tell myself, start moisturizing at a much younger age. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Stay out of the sun. Oh, yes. Um, Don't start smoking. (laughs) Right, bad idea. Um, do not go back to the person who you're going to go back to who you know I'm talking about. Yes. <laughs> um, use protection, all sorts. <laughs> right. Um, and, and probably believe in yourself a little bit more than you do mm. if you can. Mm. How do you think that we can do that? Therapy. Yes, yes. Very important. <laughs> Any final uh, words of advice to our listeners? Um, be as kind to people that need things as people have been as kind to you when you needed things. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Debbie, for being such an inspiration. I'm so honored and grateful that I got a chance to talk to you and My share your story. Thank you. thank you. Thank, thank you for Debbie. doing such good work on your podcast. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Debbie. 
If you like this episode, I would be so grateful if you can tell your friends about it and also please write me a review. This is the best way you can help me to grow my podcast so more people can find out about it. I actually check several times a day to see if there's a new review. I know it's kind of funny. And this is also how I know you're listening and what I'm creating is actually helpful for you. So if you want to make my day, please write me a review on your podcast app and I would be so grateful. And as I've shared with you at the beginning of the episode, if you are interested in learning about becoming a founding member of my new online course and group coaching program, please send me a message on my website, selinalee.co forward slash contact. That is C-E-L-I-N-A-L-E-E dot C-O forward slash contact, or just click the link on today's show notes. The course will launch this year and you'll get a lot of cool benefits as a founding member. You can also reach out to me on the same link if you have any questions about my one-on-one coaching or have any thoughts or questions about my podcast. And please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And I'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great week.